passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. The, the irony or the awkwardness of um, having child dedications and then looking at yet another murder um, that took place 3,000 years ago um, in 2 Samuel is not lost on me, all right? So um, all that said, um, I am hopeful and expectant uh, that, that this text we're going to look at this morning, um, that, that God's going to speak to us uh, through this passage this morning, that he has something to teach each and every one of us here through 2 Samuel chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 2 Samuel chapter 4. That's where we're going to be this morning, working our way through 2 Samuel. Um, as you're turning to 2 Samuel, let me just take a moment to remind you kind of where we've been so far in the story of 2 Samuel. God's people find themselves in the middle of a civil war. On the one side, you have David. That's God's chosen king. Um, he has actually brokered a, a peace agreement with those who were rebelling against his rule, against the rule of God. Uh, this peace agreement is with Abner. Abner is uh, the, the power behind the throne, so to speak, of the rival kingdom of Ishbosheth. And yet, right when that peace agreement is about to reach, um, you know, is actually going to be accomplished, um, David's nephews, Joab and Abishai, murder Abner to avenge the death of their brother Asahel. And so it seems as though David's hopes for peace have again been dashed in this moment. His, his hopes to rule the entire kingdom of God's people uh, again delayed. And, and we might ask ourselves as we get into 2 Samuel chapter 4, um, how exactly is God at work in this passage? What can we learn from 2 Samuel chapter 4? And it's a relatively short text, uh, this chapter compared to last chapter. And so um, what we're going to see is this actually breaks apart into two parts. This, this chapter breaks into two sections, the end of Saul's line at the beginning, and then after that, we look at David's response. So we're going to look at both in turn, and then we're going to consider what exactly can we learn from this text. So at the end of Saul's line, David's response, and what we can learn. That'll be our focus this morning. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, it is uh, a great privilege to um, have your word. What an incredible gift. And so um, as we open it this morning, we we confess, we believe that every single passage of scripture is, is there with a purpose um, to teach us more about you, to teach us about our great need for you, and, and we ask that you would do that this morning through Second Samuel chapter 4. God, for those of us who need a word of comfort, we ask that you would use this text to, to comfort. Uh, for those who need assurance of your love, we ask that you would use this passage. For those of us who need to see your glory, need to be reminded of the majesty of King Jesus, we, we ask that you would use this text to help all of us to see you to see your glory more clearly. We ask all these things in the name of King Jesus. Amen. All right, so I mentioned, first we're going to look at the end of Saul's line. Last chapter ended with the murder of Abner. And this morning's chapter opens with the response of Ishbosheth, the king of this rival kingdom, to the news of Abner's death. So we'll open up in verse 1. It says this, When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son 
had two men who were the captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Bena and the name of the other Rechab, sons of Rimmon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth, for Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gitiam and have been sojourners there to this day. News of Abner's death reaches Ishbosheth in his capital city, reaches the rest of Israel, and we see that they respond with despair. And I find the response of the people of Israel significant in this moment because all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, where this idea of a king is introduced among God's people, from that very moment, from the outset, God's people have been at odds with God's intended plan for a king. They have been seeking a king who will replace God, not a king who will point them to God. And that's exactly what Saul does in 1 Samuel. And then we see here, when Saul has died in battle, rather than joining this king after God's own heart, rather than joining David, what does Israel do? They gather around Saul's son Ishbosheth in a rival kingdom. Now, as we've seen, Abner is the real power behind the throne, and his death means the death of Ishbosheth's kingdom. And Israel's dismay in this moment seems to indicate a continued rebellion against God and his plan, because they're dismayed that God's plan is actually coming to fruition. At any rate, we were introduced to two key players here in this story in verses 2 and 3. They're from the tribe of Benjamin. That's the same tribe as Saul and Ishbosheth. And this familial connection, you would think that they would be some of his strongest supporters. And yet that's what is the opposite of what happens here as we're going to see in verse 5. But before we get to verse 5, we have this very, very curious parenthetical comments almost about Jonathan's son Mephibosheth in verse 4. Let's go ahead and read verse 4. It says this, Jonathan the son of Saul had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when, they t- when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now, we'll learn the rest of the story of Mephibosheth once we get to 2 Samuel chapter 9, but I I want us to just consider, pause, why exactly is Mephibosheth mentioned here? After all, this is just a story that's going to be fleshed out later once we get to chapter 9. Why do we have this moment right here? It's almost mentioned in passing. We just have one verse about what happens to Mephibosheth, and then we go right back to the story of what will eventually be the murder of Ishbosheth by these two men, these two sons of Rimmon. Well, as we consider this passage in, in its context, I, I mentioned that the first half of this chapter is about the end of Saul's line. And that's not just referring to the murder of Ishbosheth, it's also referring to his line, period. It's also referring to Mephibosheth. At this point, Saul's line, the former king of Israel, only has two valid heirs remaining for his throne. One of them is his son Ishbosheth, and the other is his grandson Mephibosheth. And yet, culturally, it would have been completely unacceptable for a person who was unable to walk to be king. And so, by mentioning here Mephibosheth's accident, 2 Samuel is telling us the providential plan of the transfer of the kingdom of God's people from Saul 
to David. And, if, and, and I'll just be honest, this is, this is problematic for me. And we'll go into the specifics of this. But, but to me, it's problematic that this little five-year-old boy is injured as a, pro, a part of God's plan. We're going to look at that here later on together, but, but notice the context here that, that this is given to us to show, to describe God is at work in transferring the kingdom from Saul to David. Let's look at verse 5. Now the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, Rechab and Bana set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he laid on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. And they took his head and went, all the, went by the way of the Arabah all night. So now we're back to the sons of Rimmon. Rechab and Bana are apparently opportunistic. They're like, uh, if, we, if you were with us in first, or 2 Samuel chapter 1, we saw this Amalekite who claimed that he had killed Saul. Uh, we've seen this from Abner in 2 Samuel chapter 3. Opportunity is there for the advancement of, of um, themselves in David's kingdom, this, this opportunity for power. And so uh, these two sons, they set out for uh, Ishbosheth's capital city. They, they enter into it. They arrive in the middle of the day. Ishbosheth is taking an afternoon nap. Seems like the life. No wonder he's a king. Hard to notice, however, the weakness of Ishbosheth's kingdom at this moment. It, it's hard, sorry, it's, it's hard not to notice the weakness of his kingdom. Here, he's sleeping in the middle of the day, but more than that, notice how his palace is described. And I, I say palace with quotation marks. His palace is not a palace at all. It's actually also a grain storage unit. So his palace is a silo out on a farm. And this actually provides the right sort of cover for these two murderers to sneak in and murder him in his bed before anyone else can notice. Say, oh, we're going in to get some grain. And yet, before they can escape, they, they behead Ishbosheth. They bring the head with them as proof of this horrific deed that they have done. Then they make a run for it. And they run the rest of the day. They run all night before they rest somewhere between Ishbosheth's capital city and David's capital city, Hebron, about 60 miles away. The second half of this chapter picks up in Hebron in the conversation between David and these two murderers. And that's where we pick up again in verse 7. Rechab, Bena have arrived before David, news of their deed. Verse 7 again. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought, his head, brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. So they arrive in Hebron. They seek an audience with King David. They receive an audience from David, and then they make this astonishing declaration. They tell David, you know what? We are the ones who have killed Ishbosheth. We have proof right here. And they show him the head. And yet the, the most 
um, significant part of their statement here is that they not only say this is what we've done, they actually have the audacity to claim that they were actually acting on behalf of God. Notice again the last half of verse 8. They're describing what they've done. They're describing their actions, and they say this, the Lord has avenged my Lord the King this day on Saul and on his offspring. So what they're saying here in this moment, they're saying, David, we're here. We've killed Ishbosheth, and God's plan can now at last move forward. We are the weapons of God's vengeance upon Saul for everything that he's put you through, as well as his offspring. And that, of course, stands in direct contrast to what we've seen from David so far in this narrative, isn't it? Back in 1 Samuel chapter 24, back in 1 Samuel chapter 26, in these two instances, David has ample opportunity to kill Saul. The opportunity is there. His army suggests that he does it, that, they take this oppor- that he takes this opportunity as proof in and of itself that David is supposed to kill Saul as a part of God's plan. And yet, David knows that wrong is always wrong. And God will accomplish his purposes without needing David to murder someone in cold blood. And that's David's heart. Rechab and Bena, they don't have any such qualms. And they have the audacity to claim, we've done the Lord's work in killing this man for you. How does David respond? Verse 9. But David answered Rechab and Bena, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. So David starts with an oath. But before we get to the oath itself, I, I want to just take a moment and, and notice how he describes God here. In verse 9, do you notice how he describes God? He says, God is the one who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. And this is a direct response from David to this claim that has been made by Rechab and Bena. They say, we're doing the will of God. We're doing God's work when we murdered Ishbosheth for you. And David's response here is saying, do you really think that God needs wickedness in order to accomplish his plans? You really think God needed you to, to do this evil act in order to, for him to redeem me out of every adversity, out of this adversity? We find here from David in this moment, this mindset, this, this focus on God's utter sovereignty God's utter plan and how we can be content in it. 
And so David, in response to their actions, he does exactly what he did a few chapters earlier with the Amalekite claim, the Amalekite in 2 Samuel chapter 1 claimed that he put Saul to death. And David brings divine judgment upon these men as God's covenant king. Not only did they kill an innocent man, and that's just what David means when he says that Ishbosheth is righteous, he also kills them because they presume to invoke the name of God as defense for their actions. And here, we, we might find David's actions and publicly displaying their bodies as unnecessary, as, as grotesque, and, and yet it serves an important reminder to the rest of the people of, of how seriously David takes obedience to the Lord, how seriously David takes obedience to God's commandments. David here is standing at this turning point for his kingdom, and he resolves that his kingdom is going to be a kingdom of justice and obedience to the Lord. It's not going to be this kingdom of wickedness and rebelling against God. And that's the story. I think one of the interesting things here is that there is a kernel of truth in what Rechab and Bena claim. They, they say, you know what, God, is going, God used us to avenge you upon Saul and your enemies. And God does indeed use their wicked actions to accomplish his purposes for David, for his people. In the grand scheme of things, God uses the actions of Rechab and Bena as wicked as they are to accomplish in the grand story of the Bible his plan of redemption to save humanity. But Rechab and Bena say that, you know what, we did this as a part of God's plan, and they use that as a form of amnesty, like let us off the hook. If, if anything, reward us for our actions. We're, we're just doing God's will. We should be rewarded, and God has a completely different view of things. And I think that's the first of, of three things that we can learn from this text, from this passage this morning. The reality is we serve a good God who oftentimes uses the wicked deeds and the wicked desires of wicked people to accomplish his purposes. As a part of God's mysterious sovereignty, God uses the wickedness of Rechab, the, the wickedness of Bena here to accomplish his plans of giving the kingdom to David. And as we read that, as we consider that, we might say, well, does that make God guilty of wickedness itself? This is actually a recurring theme throughout the scriptures. That God uses the wickedness of people to accomplish good things. Joseph in Genesis declares, he, he sums it up so well, uh, of this perspective of how God uses evil for good. He says this in Genesis chapter 50, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The Bible teaches us that God is in complete and utter control of all things, and for God to be in complete and utter control of all things, that means he's not just in control of the good. He's also in control of the bad. And because God is in complete control, he uses the evil desires of evil people, of evil men, evil women to accomplish his purposes in the world. Genesis, Joseph's brothers desired to put him into slavery, to get rid of him. They, they didn't intend good to come out of that. They just wanted him gone. And yet God had different plans. 
here in 2 Samuel, Rechab and Bana, they intended evil toward Ishbosheth. They wanted to advance their own status in the kingdom of David. And yet, because God is in complete and utter control of things, God, without coercing Joseph's brothers, without coercing Rechab and Bana here, and without coercing any number of people who have committed any number of acts of wickedness throughout history, God uses their evil intentions for good. And that's exactly what we see at the cross. Exactly what we see at the cross. Don't miss what Peter says in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, Peter is describing what God has done at the cross. And he says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. How was Jesus killed? Well, according to Peter here, it is is because Jesus is crucified by the crowds. He's killed by the hands of lawless men. There's this very real evil desire from the Jews, from the Romans, to put Jesus to death. They wanted to do it. They delighted to do it. And yet Peter also says, this is a part of the definite plan. This is a part of of God's foreknowledge. This is something that God has planned out from the very beginning. It's a part of God's plan. The crowds want to kill Jesus. It's not as though they were coerced into that thinking. As though they're like, well, we don't don't really want to do this, but, but God needs this to take place as a part of his plan. No, God uses their evil intention. They did what they wanted to do because God is sovereign. He's in control. He uses those evil desires, those evil actions of evil people to accomplish the greatest good that human history has ever seen. God can and does use the wicked deeds of wicked people to accomplish great good. At the core of Rechab and Bana's actions here is not a desire to honor the Lord. It's a desire to exalt themselves to exalt themselves in David's kingdom and the shifting political landscape. They want to look out for themselves and themselves alone. And if that meant that Ishbosheth had to be murdered in his bed, so be it. And yet God uses that. Have you ever considered the ways that God can bring great good from great evil? Not just thousands of years ago, but how he could do that in your life as well. I think that's one of the first things we have to learn from this passage. God can bring great good from great evil. That's what this God does. He brings great good from great evil. That's not to say that you're going to understand it. Joseph surely didn't understand it in Genesis chapters 37 through 50. It wasn't until decades after he had been sold into slavery that he finally understood what God was doing in that great evil, the great good that God was working when he experienced great pain and sorrow. And it might be the same with you. Pastor Tim Keller shares a particularly powerful example of how God uses um, great evil to bring about great good. About 500 years after King David, the people of Israel were conquered by this ruthless pagan nation called the Babylonians. And David's capital city, Jerusalem, the temple, all of these things were destroyed. This was, without a doubt, the worst moment in Israel's history. They lost their kingdom, they lost their king, they lost their land, they lost their temple, they lost everything. 
Many of them were kicked out of their land and, and brought into captivity in Babylon. That all took place in 586 BC. Jerusalem is destroyed by the Babylonians. And with Jerusalem's destruction, the Jewish people are not just sent to Babylon. They're actually sent all over the known world. And so then there's these these communities of Jews that begin to crop up across the known world in, in Iraq and Egypt and Syria and Ethiopia and Libya and Turkey and Greece and Rome and beyond. This is called the diaspora in history. And yes, some of them return to Jerusalem under Cyrus, but, but most of them, uh, they, they put down roots in these communities across the globe. And that's where they lived and their, their children lived for generations and generations. Now, with no temple, there was a new form of worship that had to be developed in Judaism. No longer was the, the worship centered primarily around the temple until it was rebuilt. and now became centered around this thing called the synagogue. This was a place for the people of God to gather together, and wherever these Jews lived, most of these places had synagogues. They began to to crop up in these communities of Jews in every pagan city, all across the known world, every pagan nation. There were these synagogues, and these synagogues began to attract not just the Jews, but they began to attract these Gentiles who began to became known as these God-fearers because they were interested in the God of Israel. At the same time that the Babylonians scattered Judah all over the known world, it's, it's quickly destroyed. And this new nation crops up as the world's superpower. It's called Persia. And then Persia is quickly destroyed. And there's this new superpower that crops up. It's called the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. And under Alexander the Great, for the first time in world history, there is this language that is used across the known world. Greek is finally something that that ties everyone together where they can communicate with one another, which makes it possible for a book, like the Bible, to be used and widely spread throughout the world. After the Greek Empire is destroyed, it's destroyed by this empire called the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire uh, builds roads, maintains roads throughout its empire in a way that has never before been seen. It's unprecedented. They establish peace through an iron fist, granted, but peace in a way that has never, ever happened before. And we fast forward to the first century AD and what happens? Jesus dies for the sins of humanity. He provides a way for not only the Jews, but also for the Gentiles to have access to the throne of God. And that gospel begins to go forth. It goes out on these roads that have been established by the Roman Empire. It's bringing a message to diverse peoples through a common language, Greek. And it reaches into these communities where these synagogues are found. And you know who latches on to the message the most? It's not primarily the Jews. And it's not the pagans. It's these God-fearing Gentiles that God, for hundreds of years, has been drawing to himself in preparation for this moment because he spread synagogues all across the known world. In a short in just a short few hundred years, Christianity has become the most prominent religion in the world. Today, the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth And do you think anyone who was living in Jerusalem in 586 BC when it was destroyed knew what God was doing and the great evil that they experienced from the wicked Babylonians? 
It reminds us that just because we cannot understand God's plan doesn't mean that God's character is somehow in question. Just because we don't understand it doesn't mean that we should judge God or his character. In fact, it would be foolish to do that. You know, if you've experienced great evil, do you believe that God can use it for good? That he can use it for good? And you might not know what what God is doing. And maybe that great good isn't even something that you will see in your own life. It might be in someone else's life. What if, if you endure great evil, your children see a a sign of, of patient trust in the Lord? What if God is doing something that you cannot see right now? Because this is a God who brings great good out of great evil. This text doesn't just point us or teach us to this God who's at work in the great evil of the world. He's also at work in the seemingly pointless tragedies of the world. I mentioned earlier that I think the hardest part of this passage for me is verse 4 about Mephibosheth. It says this, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. In the context of this passage, it's clear that God is actually using the crippling of Mephibosheth to pass the throne or the kingdom from Saul to David. And I struggle with that. And maybe it's just because I have kids that are the same age as Mephibosheth here. I, I, I struggle with this idea. I, I, don't, I don't really struggle with Rechab and Bana. They wanted to do something evil, and God's like, hey, I, I outsmarted you. you. You're not doing my will, but you are doing my will, and you will receive judgment for it. I, I don't really struggle with that. But it's not as if Mephibosheth or his caretaker, as they're running for their lives from the Philistines, have this desire for a crippling injury. It's not as though they are notably wicked. And yet in the midst of the terror of this Philistine occupation, this five-year-old Mephibosheth is running for his life, falls while he is running, and he lives the rest of his life crippled. And it seems almost calloused to me to see this mentioned here in verse 4 so matter-of-factly. And so when we read something like this, we have to ask, what, ex- what exactly is God teaching us? What exactly can we see here about the character of God? What is God doing in the midst of what I would call a pointless tragedy? And I, I use that intentionally with quotations. How do we reconcile that with a, with a good God? In many ways, this verse on Mephibosheth reminds me of, Joseph, or of John the Baptist. John the Baptist suffered on the surface to me one of the most pointless meaningless deaths in history. This man, he was a bastion of righteousness, calling people to to repent, to come to the Lord. He's a prophet preparing the way for Jesus, doing all of this work. He's not martyred for his faith. He's killed because a king doesn't want to be embarrassed on his birthday. He doesn't even have the chance for one last sermon. 
And you look at, at church history, and, and church history is filled with people who have, have given up everything for the call of the gospel, to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And you look and you realize that a number of those people who committed their lives to Christ, they die before they even have a chance to do what they set out to do. The number of people, rather than being killed for their faith, who meet sickness on the way to those far off places. The number of people who die because of a misunderstanding of a language barrier. The number of people who die just because of, a, of an accident. And you look at all of these things and, and pointless tragedy seems to be everywhere. It's, it's in our lives as well. The history of the church is, is filled with it. We're well acquainted with it. How does God use our sufferings? How does God use our afflictions? our pains, especially the ones that seem pointless to accomplish good. There's a promise in, in, in 2 Corinthians, I think every single one of us should memorize this, should take it to heart so that when we experience what seems like pointless suffering, we can cling to this truth for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I think the most powerful part of this verse is that Paul is not primarily talking about suffering for the sake of the gospel. He's just talking about pain, period. Just a verse earlier, that was verse 17. In verse 16, Paul is talking about his body wasting away. He's talking about sickness, disease, chronic illness, and pain. The reality of increasingly growing older and older and our bodies not being able to function the way they once did. And we might ask, is there any redeeming quality in the midst of this, this thing that, that seems like pointless tragedy? And Paul seems to think so. Paul seems to think so. He declares that all of these sufferings, all of them, not just those that are done for the sake of the gospel, all of them are preparing in us, for us, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. No matter what tragedy you experience, it does not have to be pointless. When we endure hardship and suffering well, it is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And whether uh, in, or when in the midst of that aff affliction we, we choose to trust in Jesus, when we choose to wait upon him, when we ask, to, uh, we ask God to intervene, when we choose to seek his face, then God is using those momentary afflictions that may not seem momentary in the moment, but are indeed momentary. God is using those to prepare us for this eternal weight of glory that we cannot begin to fathom. And we might say, well, what exactly do we do with, or what about Mephibosheth here? How is God doing that in his life? Well, what, is, what about this five-year-old who can no longer run the rest of his life? Thank God we are given the rest of the story in 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9, David actually invites him into his table. 
gives him a seat at his table. Mephibosheth, just like his father Jonathan, knows that this kingdom belongs to David. It was never his to begin with, and it is far better in Mephibosheth's eyes to sit at the king's table than to pretend to be the king. Whether that is the king of of some rebellious kingdom or, or just the king of our own lives, it is far better to sit at the true king's table. You see, Mephibosheth is welcomed as an outcast into the courts of the king forever. It's hard not to see the gospel here, isn't it? As we also are welcomed into the courts of the king to sit at his table forever because of the king's mercy. And we cannot begin to to understand this mysterious and painful providence at work in Mephibosheth's life that leads to this moment. Was he mad at God? Was he bitter with God? Did he struggle with bitterness for not being able to walk, for losing his dad at a young age, for all the things that God was doing in his life that he didn't really care for? Did he dwell on all these things that God had taken away from him? And we don't know that story. We, we shouldn't presume to assume these kind of things. But at the end, we see a heart that doesn't focus on the pointless tragedy he experienced, these afflictions of his life, but instead the fact that he's known by the true king. This is a man who gets 2 Samuel, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, for the light momentary affliction is preparing in us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When you face pointless tragedy, pointless affliction, are you tempted to bitterness? Are, are you tempted to wonder where God is or do you marvel at the fact that you are known by the true king, a better king than David? Are you in awe that this king has invited you to his table forever? That's another lesson we have to take to heart from this passage. This God uses pointless tragedy for our great good. The reality is there's no such thing as pointless tragedy. God has a purpose in everything. Even when we cannot understand what God is doing, when we turn to him in the midst of this, this God is using these things for our great good because in everything, in all our affliction, it is light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that God is preparing for us. One more thing to highlight from this chapter, David's statement in verse 9, I mentioned this earlier, the Lord has redeemed my life out of every adversity, this description of God. Remember, David's statement here is a response to this claim from Rechab and Bana in verse 8, that through their actions, the Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. Do you see what what David is saying here when he, he says, The Lord has redeemed my life out of every adversity. He's saying every single time that I found myself faced with affliction and adversity, the Lord has come through for me every single time. And in this present affliction and this present adversity, I have complete confidence that God was going to do what he has always done for me again in his timing, again in his way, and it was going to be without your help. 
because that's the type of God that I have every single time. He's never let me down yet. What is it that positioned David in this place where where he could say with such confidence, I will wait upon the Lord, I will wait upon his timing because he always comes through for me? The answer is simple, and yet it's, it's profound when we take it to heart. He took the time to remember how God had been at work time and time and time and time again in his past. David had seen God bring him out of adversity in ordinary ways and extraordinary supernatural ways. He had seen God redeem him out of adversity by him just doing nothing, staying put, waiting and he'd also seen God redeem him out of adversity by him taking encourage, or courageous stands of obedience and faith for the glory of God. He had seen God redeem him out of adversity through others, reminding him of the promises of God and by God re- rescuing him out of his own unbelief. If you look through 1 Samuel 17 through 31, you see example, 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 all of these things, this multifaceted way of how God is at work redeeming David out of every adversity. And the one constant through it all, every single way that God does this is different. But the one constant through it all is that God has never left David, that God is always with David, no matter the affliction no matter the adversity that he faced. And for David here in 2 Samuel chapter 4, the key to waiting on the Lord to work on his behalf came from remembering all those moments. It came from David remembering how Jonathan stepped in to deliver him from Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 19. It came from David remembering how God had used Abigail in in 1 Samuel chapter 25 to stay his hand from committing murder. It came from how God had intervened to deliver David through the Philistines of all people in 1 Samuel chapter 23. It came from remembering how God had orchestrated event after event after event for David to rescue his family in 1 Samuel chapter 30. It came from David remembering how God had used David's own commitment to the glory of God to save him from Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And on and on. And the more that we take time to look at and remember the ways that God has worked for us in the past, the easier it is for us to trust him right now, to trust him in the present, no matter what circumstances we face. I think of my own life, and and when I reflect upon how God drew me to himself all the way back in 2004, it reminds me that he's not going to cast me out now. If he loved me then, he's going to love me now. When I think about the way that God called me into ministry, it reminds me that he's going to sustain me. When I think of the way that God met my my family's needs while we were in seminary, and and, you you, you look at our bills and our income on paper, and it did not add up. And how God provided and met those needs, it reminds me God takes care of the needs of his people. And I look at the last 10 years of what God's been doing here at Crosswinds, and it reminds me of God's unconditional, unfathomable love for his people and his church, no matter what the future holds. We can know that the God who was faithful yesterday will be faithful today and tomorrow too. And I think that's something that we have to take to heart. 
this God who was faithful yesterday will be faithful today and tomorrow too. I don't know what adversities, afflictions are facing you, will face you, but the key to persevering in the midst of them is to look to the past. When it seems like God is nowhere to be found today, remember the ways that God was at work in your past yesterday. Whether that yesterday is one day ago, whether that yesterday is a year ago, whether it's hundreds of years ago, and you're just remembering God's faithfulness to his people throughout the ages. The God who was faithful yesterday will be faithful today and tomorrow too. The ways of God are are indeed mysterious. We can't always see what God is doing. But you can rest assured that he is at work. He is at work. So run to this God who takes evil, who takes tragedy and uses it for good and who will do it in your life too. The God who was faithful yesterday will be faithful today and tomorrow too. Let's pray. Father, it is so good that you are faithful. What a gift it is that you care for your people unwaveringly, unshakingly. Thank you. God, we ask for forgiveness for the times where we wonder where you are, we wonder what you're doing, where we begin to even think, are you at work? Are you here? God, help us to remember the type of God that you are, that you are the God who has redeemed our lives out of every adversity, and that you did it yesterday, and you will do it today. And you will do it tomorrow too. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.